Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better, Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Hello and welcome to Back Talk, the show where two feminist people talk about this week in feminism and pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch Media. And hi. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> All the way from the great state of Mississippi, it's Amy Lamb. Yes, I'm Amy Lamb, the contributing editor. And I'm so excited to be doing Back Talk today. If you... I, like, I, like miss, I miss doing this because I'm not in the office, so oh. this is like my time to like dip back into bitch world, I guess. Yeah, if you've missed the last couple shows, the story up till now is that Amy Lamb has moved across the country from Portland, Oregon to Mississippi to pursue an MFA in creative writing and fiction at what what university? You literally told me this a million times. The University of Mississippi. University of Mississippi at, at Oxford. And how is this is your second week of classes? I just wrapped up the second week of classes and it was way better than the first week of classes. <laughs> Um, I just, I just feel a lot better, even though like I, I just got the keys to my new place. So I haven't even moved into my actual, um, house yet. Um, but, uh, second week is way better. Uh, you know, we're getting into the groove of things and readings are more manageable. And also, uh, Monday was a holiday cause it was Labor Day. And so I have two classes on Monday and, and I've been out of school for so long that I didn't realize that. You know, if you have Monday classes, then when there's a Monday holiday, you don't have to go to class. So it hit me. I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe I should have a lot of Monday classes for the rest of my academic career. Um, Are you already trying to get out of class? Isn't the whole point of getting an MFA is that, like, you love school, you want to go to class? Well, I mean, because, like, uh, I'm just saying, like, that can be, you know, a strategy I use for classes that if, if I'm not, like, super into them or if it's, like, too like, workload heavy or something you know I'm just you know exploring my options mm-hmm. just trying to like work smarter not harder I think that's, that's my mantra <laughs> um all right Amy so we start out the show with talking about our favorite piece of pop culture this week uh I know you've been mostly like reading for school and like have been in the world of repainting your house and moving into a new place but what's been what's been on your mind well um uh, this this piece of pop culture is actually a few months old, but um, just for some reason, it just popped up on my uh, Facebook feed, and I think it's because it's football season just started up. Um, but it's about this um, offensive lineman from the Baltimore Ravens. His name is John Urschel, and he's a mathematician. <laughs> and uh, he finished his undergrad in three years at Penn State, so he just breezed right through and got a master's degree in mathematics, and then. Um, and he was working on it, and then he got into like the best school for mathematics, which is MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And so he's pursuing a PhD in mathematics. And so um, in the spring semester earlier this year was his first semester there to, to earn his PhD, and he got straight A's. Wow. And, so he, and, and he's also like breaking all the stereotypes about who you think like a typical football player is and who you think a typical mathematician is. Um, so it was just really great to read about John Urschel. 
my favorite piece of pop culture was um, I've been editing this article for what feels like days and it just got published about the protests that the Standing Rock Sioux tribe is waging against the North Dakota Access Pipeline. And if you haven't been following this story, it's basically that the Standing Rock Sioux tribe has really been pushing back against this pipeline that's being built really close to their land that they're really worried is going to contaminate their water supply and that the construction of the pipeline will destroy and disrupt some sacred areas. And this has just turned into like this massive protest where there's like thousands of people gathering uh, in rural North Dakota to say, hey, you can't build this pipeline here. And it just isn't is a really like exciting and dynamic example of like a group of people pushing for environmental protections and pushing for indigenous rights. It's an indigenous led protest there. So uh, it's been pretty inspiring, cool to read about. I feel like the political news for the last few months has just been so depressing and terrible. And I can't handle listening to any more of Trump on the radio. (laughs) So it's been especially like, like, wow, like, even in this political climate where there's so much terrible stuff happening, there are awesome activists and people worth celebrating who are doing good political work. And also, the, like, this this piece of news has been really underreported by mainstream news outlets. Like, I only really learned about it because people were posting about it, uh, this one specific piece um, on Facebook, and nobody else was really talking about it. So I'm really excited to read this piece. Yeah, if we could if we could erase all discussion of Trump for like the next week and just replace it with coverage of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, I'd be totally fine with that. That sounds great. Let's do that. Our first piece that we're going to be talking about is um, the football player from the San Francisco 49ers, Colin Kaepernick, who's a quarterback. Um, so he came into the news a couple of weeks ago because um, people finally noticed that he was sitting down during the national anthem. So the NFL season just started, but before the NFL season, there's the preseason where teams play each other for fun. <laughs> like it, it doesn't go against um, their rankings during the regular season. And during the preseason, uh, Kaepernick had actually been sitting during the national anthems for a few games already, and then I think it was about their third Niners game where like the press and the people started to actually notice that he was sitting down. So I think he got a lot of like inquiries about why he was sitting during the national anthem, and so he clarified that um, he's protesting against like injustice against people of color due to institutional racism, but in particular, he was mentioning like police brutality and the unjust treatment of people of color, um, particularly black folks at the hands of law enforcement. So actually, I wanted to listen to like a really really short clip of him doing this locker room uh, impromptu press conference where he talked for 20 minutes about why he's doing this and, and he made some really excellent points. I just wanted to hear a little clip from that. I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people you know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. With this happening, there's been a lot of backlash. Uh, A lot of people are saying that, you know, he's being disrespectful to those who are in the military, to those who have, quote, you know, fought for our freedoms. But there's so much wrong with the critique of 
Kaepernick's protest? Because this, there's this idea that um, he's like anti-military or anti-people who have served this country. And it's illogical because if we really think about um, like what the military has fought for our freedoms, doesn't it protect his right to protest in this way? Mm-hmm. And I think that and it shows like a, a weird hypocrisy and non-logical way of thinking about this. And this is actually shown because um, uh, there's a hashtag that was trending, which was like uh, veterans for Kaepernick. And it showed a lot of vets being like, hey, like I actually fought for I fought for many things. And one of those things is for Kaepernick's right to sit down during the national anthem. And, and another piece about this is when I was thinking about more about why we have to stand and like show this patriotism is like, you know, why do we pay it? play the national anthem before sporting events anyway. Like we don't play a national anthem before a movie or like before a play. So, and this actually really elucidates to how like the sports industrial complex is a shill for the military industrial complex. And there's this book that I read a couple years ago by Steve Allman called Against Football. And he lays out all the ways in which like the NFL works with the US military to create what amounts to like propaganda for the military. Um, and and so it's unsurprising that there's so much vitriol against him. Like, you know, there were fans that have his jersey that were like uh, shown a video themselves like burning it. And while I was watching that, I was thinking like, I don't have a Kaepernick jersey. I would want one. And, <laughs> it, <laughs> and in fact, like the sales for his jerseys have topped, have gone to number one. Like I think it was yesterday or today. So how, how do football and the army work work together what's the connection there it's a it's really about like um i I think there are different levels to it and one of it it's like about um uh when we think about like uh the playbook and how we form formations it is a very technical thing about like you know like in war there's strategy how you plan like you're gonna fight your enemy so there's like that that on the field um comparison to sports and and war and fighting and then with the nfl and itself and like how it promotes um patriotism through the military is that like you know before every game they have service uh, service people is that what they're called the military folks <laughs> but they they come out on the field um in uniform carrying flags you know to to show that like uh we've invited like uh military folks to come to the game to to show that like um we support them or like you know, there are like halftime shows and things like that where they have, um, you know, like the, the jets fly across the stadium or even um, they they heavily uh, promote them through advertising, through commercial breaks. Uh, during commercial breaks, they'll air ads for the U.S. military, you know, so just little things like that. So like the, the mix where it's like really like it's just slipped in there, but just enough so that like when you're watching a game um, on television, just like I, I'm really rooting for this team. But then like I'm also really rooting for America. It's like it's so intertwined um, and it's just like this cross promotional way to say that, like when you're watching football, you're watching like a very American sport and. And, and that also reflects like our patriotism through the military. I guess I always saw that as the military saying, hey, I bet football fans also want to support the army. Like that is kind of a canny cross promotional thing. Um, but that it's actually more intentional than that. Like that, that like the NFL gets paid by the army to do those kinds of displays. Yes, I think it does go that deep because it means something when like they're paying for airspace or like ad time um, during really popular games, like during the Super Bowl. Even you know they have ads that are, are promoting um, their agenda to get us to like rally against going to war. Um, so it, it is a big deal that like Kaepernick is doing this, but like 
he's not do, he's not anti-military or he I mean in the press conference itself he says that like you know I I have people in my life who are in the military I support them and I really appreciate like their work but this isn't about the military like let's separate these two things yeah it's always um, such a red it's it's just such a red herring argument when people say oh you're being critical of the United States that means you hate uh service members or that means you hate America and I remember so much of this happening do you remember what it felt like in the aftermath of like September 11th and the lead up to the Iraq war when being critical of the government in any way or being critical of the war immediately got pegged as like not an American or as some kind of traitor I remember having lots of uh, discussions around that and people getting pretty heated at that time. This it kind of reminds me of that that rhetoric, right? Because I remember at that time, like a lot of politicians were. I mean, like if you were in the Senate or the House, like you were not to vote against any legislation that would prevent us from going to war, you know. And if you did, then you were very un-American and unpatriotic, and and then like your 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 job was at risk because you you're afraid that you won't get voted in again um, because you voted against the war. Um, and it's, it's also interesting because like, there's always critiques about like how people protest, you know, like, like if we, if we go out in the streets and protest and like block traffic, then like we're, you know, causing inconveniences and, um, then we're being a nuisance. But then like when we also protest in such a way that's very peaceful and very passive, he's just sitting down, then it's also being criticized. So it's like, there's never a right way to, to protest an unjust system, um, when we don't want to like change it. Uh, and another thing is that, like, just today, Roger Goodell, who's the commissioner of the NFL, so he's, like, the big head honcho of the NFL, he came out and he did a con- press conference speaking about Kaepernick, like, finally. I, can- I think people were really waiting to hear what he had to say. And so he really, he, you know, the way he spoke about it, he's, he really couched it in, he's, in a way that was just like, um, I really support our military, and they're, like, a big part of um, our protecting our freedoms in this country. And And he actually said, like, quote, I don't necessarily agree with what he is doing. Uh, we encourage our players to be respectful in that time, and I think, and I like to think of it as a moment where we can unite as a country. So he's speaking at that time during the national anthem. So even though he doesn't agree, like he is saying that like players have a platform, they have a right to do that. Um, but he is also saying that like they should be quote respectful. I really don't see where the disrespect is with Kaepernick sitting down. Um, but and this also plays to like when um, uh, when Gabby Douglas like forgot to put her hand over her chest during the the national anthem when she won a gold uh, for being an amazing athlete. It's like we really criticize um, when I think in particular when people of color, when black folks like uh, are questioning, like, what does this anthem mean to me or what does this flag mean to me? And it's so interesting, I think, because Kaepernick is just is like one person. He's staging a one person protest. But this has gotten so much attention and gotten so many people talking in a way that protests with a lot more people haven't. And it's in, I think it's interesting as to see sort of what the impact of somebody who's uh, like a sports star has. Like he's using this platform he has as a major sports star and him just sitting down has just literally just sitting down has sent like shockwaves through the media you know <laughs> and that that to me says a lot about like the power that uh, sports has to um to influence people that sports are like the pop culture medium that a lot of people turn to for uh when, when they turn on their tv and so stuff that happens on the field really has big repercussions and that's so many 
team owners, like basically every team owner and every person who's in charge is really controls players behavior tightly and says, you know, don't be political, don't protest. They really police their behavior pretty tightly. I think because they know people are watching. Right. And, uh, and so like, you know, it's really interesting to see uh, people's criticisms of him or like the support of him, like, for example, the hashtag veterans for Kaepernick. Um, but also last week, um, the, this woman football player who's who was on a, the women's national team, Megan Rapinoe, who plays for the Seattle Reign. Uh, so this is the thing about this story that really that like got me on a really base level as like a person who's involved in media. Well, she was at her game where they were playing um, another team and I forget the other team's name, but the the thing about women's soccer in America is that it has so f- like little coverage like like almost zero coverage that two of the largest sports agent sports photo agencies like um which I think is the USA Today or get and Getty Images neither of them were they had no photographers there so it was actually up to like this person who's on Twitter who was a fan of women's soccer who was there who took this photo of uh, uh, Megan Rapinoe who knelt during the um the national anthem, like in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. Uh, and so she said that the reason why she didn't stand for the national anthem is because, quote, being a gay American, I know what it means to look at the flag and not have it protect all of your liberties. Um, and, and, and she also goes on to say that, like, and I think this is really important. She says that it's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this. We don't need to be the leading voice, of course, but standing in support of them is something that's really powerful. And she points out that, like, the critiques against um, Kaepernick were very racist um, and it just didn't feel right with her. And so she wanted to add to that conversation, especially as a queer person. Um, but like in a way, we wouldn't have even known that she had done this if uh, this person uh, whose handle is at GBPacFan32, shout out to you. Um, they took the picture of Megan Rapinoe kneeling during the national anthem. And because the, women's soccer gets so little coverage that there were no like big sports agency photographers there to photograph photograph this moment but it, it's it says a lot about so many things that this was captured in such a way so good on her for doing that and also i am all over ebay trying to find a good kaepernick jersey <laughs> but now that i learned about john urschel the mathematician i'm like maybe i should also get an urschel's jersey so maybe my entire wardrobe is just going to be full of nfl jerseys <laughs> like before the football season is over <laughs> All right. Our second topic we want to talk about is about freelance writers and how uh, news outlets as well as the general economy treats freelancers. This is sparked by there is a big article in the Columbia Journalism Review. The article was about how Vice treats its freelancers. Um, And the article is basically saying Vice has screwed over a lot of freelance journalists and has not just on an anecdotal basis, but has a pattern of mistreating freelancers. And Vice, uh, in the report, people, numerous freelancers say that Vice basically asked them to do a bunch of work and then never paid them for that work. So work involving both um, like setting up, like doing pre-production for film crews that were coming, doing the work of basically uh, somebody who would really help them find stories. So they'd email, you know, experienced journalists who were living somewhere and saying, hey, we want to report on this issue what's the story? And then that journalist doing a bunch of work and not getting paid for it, as well as asking freelancers to write articles, having them turn them in, and then the editor is basically going AWOL and not writing the freelancers back. And maybe if they get hounded enough paying them, 
half or some of what they said they would be paid. Uh, in response to this big article that came out uh, in the Columbia Journalism Review uh, two weeks ago, Vice's head of content uh, wrote a memo in response outlining a series of steps they would do to improve their working relationships with freelancers um, and saying that they were going to make a bunch of changes. But this, for me, just raises the issue of, you know, what what downsides are there to being a freelancer in our economy? What does that hustle look like? And it's especially important because our economy is becoming more and more driven by freelancers all the time. Uh, we had an article in the money issue of Bitch, which came out uh, at the beginning of the summer, in the spring, called Between a Boss and a Hard Place, Why More Women Are Freelancing. And it pointed to how uh, the gig economy is not just a niche thing, that now like a third of the nation's workforce is classified as freelancers. And what does that look like? Yeah. And and another thing that struck me as I was reading this piece was um, right off the bat, like the piece is written by women. And then um, the people that she's talking about who got ripped off by vice or like were used by vice and not um, compensated, they were all women, like from the very get go of the story, um, like two French journalists and one Moroccan journalist. Um, and so, like right off the bat, I was thinking about like, wow, like this is—is is this something that like they're preying on women journalists? Like that's just, that's just, that was just like a, a feeling that I, I like got as I was reading the piece. Um, but it really speaks to like, like why we should support the media that supports the people who work for them. You know, I think that like Vice has gotten this reputation for being like super edgy, doing very important work. Like they used to be, you know, um, a free glossy magazine that just had like. Uh, really interesting articles or like um, uh, edgy art or something like that. But like now they're like a reputable media organization and, um, you know, they have like their own shows on HBO. Um, they have different uh, quote verticals, you know, like they have broadly, which is uh, geared towards women um, and, uh, and motherboard, which is like geared towards more tech stuff. But it's like, you know, we put our eyeballs on things th like this, but we have to think about, what it means when we click on their website, because like we're giving them money to not give the people who are providing their work for them, and I think that like I I think that freelancing is one of the hardest things ever. Like I have a lot of friends who are freelancers, and I'm just like I admire their hustle so much. Um, it's a lot of work with not that much security, um, and to think that like that these freelancers are taken advantage in this way um, where it's like their livelihoods and, and they're using their expertise to help vice, like get a better story so that they can be a reputable um, like journalism outlet. It's really, it's really just on a very base level, like super heartbreaking to see, to see something like this come out. But I'm glad that this is being talked about because another thing about vice is that like, because they're, they're so popular, they kind of have like a stronghold and you can't like, as a, a mere freelancer, you would be scared to like come out to say like they fucked me over because yeah. you don't want to be like blacklisted by Vice or like other news media organizations. Yeah. And it makes me think a lot about my own behavior as an editor. I work with a, a bitch. Most of the writing publishes all freelancers. And so last year I worked with about 100 freelancers to publish their stories at Bitch. And reading through this Vice article, I was like, wow, I hope that nobody I've ever worked with feels this way you know because it is a power it's a power imbalance when you know when I'm the editor saying you know you know this is what we're, we're going to publish this we're going to not publish this those are decisions that we talk about collectively a bitch and have you know an editorial team that works on it but still the freelancers are like trying to uh, get get their piece published and we're saying yes here's how much we're going to pay you 
yes or no on it. We're going to publish it or not. You have to be really, I really try and approach that in a, in a really thoughtful and intentional way and recognize that like, uh, that there is that like, I'm acting as a gatekeeper, you know, that as much as I want to be, uh, a, a platform for people as an editor, you're also acting as a gatekeeper saying yes or no, we're going to publish this. And that hopefully something would really, really make sure we do it, bitch, is pay everybody on time and pay them what we said we would pay them. I know this in my freelance writing. I also freelance write for places and it's such a pain in the ass to get paid. <laughs> you have to, I, I currently have like a couple invoices out, which you know, maybe I'll get paid six months from now for an article or for a piece I've written for a book. They want the writing immediately as fast as possible. But when you follow up about getting paid for that piece of writing, they're like, yeah, you know, maybe in like three months. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. And that, that is that is something that like, I do want to shout out Amanda, who is the bitches finance and admin person. Like Amanda pays people on time. So yeah, and I think <laughs> something that like, yeah, I just think as an I think as an editor, you really have to have those kinds of issues on your radar. You know, you have to be thinking about like, what does it mean for this person to get paid on time? What does it mean for this person to have me write them back and say, here's what's going on with your article and to try and be as transparent as possible about the editorial process and try and be as transparent as possible about um, what's happening with their piece. Because otherwise, as you'll see in the case of these vice freelancers, they feel like they turned in articles and then they were just sort of like dropped off a cliff, um, which that's not the situation you want. You want to have a back and forth. Um, I think it's it's also, I mean, I was thinking about these issues also a lot this week because it was Labor Day. and made me think about who gets Labor Day off and who works on Labor Day. And as more and more of the economy becomes freelancers, freelancers, like you have the benefit of flexibility, which is why a lot of people become freelancers. Either they have kids and they want to be able to work from home or set their own hours, or a lot of people, uh, they have a disability or multiple disabilities. That means they need to set their own work schedule. They need to work from home rather than going into an office that might not be accessible and working around a bunch of other people. Those are some reasons why people become freelancers and that flexibility is key. But that also means you don't get like paid holidays off. You don't get paid sick leave. You don't get paid vacation time. And so a lot of times a lot of employers are like very excited about having contracted workers or freelance workers because they don't have to pay for their health care. They don't have to pay them vacation time and sick time. And they can bill it as like, look, you get more flexibility. Right. It's so it which is which makes this even more like bitter because um for employers, like having freelancers is really beneficial to them, like for all the reasons that you said, like they don't have to pay vacation days or paid holidays, they don't have to pay into a four oh one K. Um, they can just kind of like, you know, have them on contract, use them and then be done with them. Um so that's why this this story about vice is even worse. It's because like you don't even have to do all of these things, these structural things that you would for a full time employee, um, that would cost you way more money. And you're just contracting with this person, like the very least you can do is just pay them for the work that they did for you. They're not asking for anything extra they're not asking um for like what their benefits package is you know they don't they don't need want to know like um how much how many weeks of maternity leave they can get they just want to get paid for their work and you're like a gigantic media organization with tons of money um and it's just really disheartening to think that they're 
they're taking advantage of these people who have a, a very particular skill set that they worked really hard for um, and they're doing good work and they're not being paid for it. Yeah, I guess that's what really gouges me about this is I'm like, somebody is making money at Vice. You know, it's not like it's some sort of little like scrappy community organization that's like really trying to get it together to pay everybody on time. Like, no, like plenty of people are making lots of money there. And apparently it's not the freelancers who are writing the content. Um Something else that's that's interesting to think about with the freelance economy, and this is brought up in that article between a boss and a hard place, which is by the writer Sarah Gray, freelance writer, freelance editor who wrote that piece for us about freelancing. Um, she pointed out that women freelancers out earn male freelancers. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2013, they found out all other things being equal, female freelancers out earn male freelancers by $10 a week. That's not very much, it's 10 bucks. But it means that one reason that people gave for becoming freelancers is because they couldn't get ahead in their organizations and uh, the roles that sexism and ableism and racism had to do with that. That people are, if they're able to, are ditching having a boss and having a structure over them that might undervalue their skills. So the idea that women freelancers are out earning male freelancers, as Sarah Gray writes, suggests that women who are undervalued in more traditional workplaces because of sex, race, parental status, age, gender, sexual orientation, all those other factors that give men the workplace advantage, they earn more when they ditch the boss and take their chances in the freelance sector. So it's it's kind of a way for women to say, hey, here's what I'm worth, I'm gonna set my own rates, and and push for that but all the downsides that come along with that are having to be your own boss and 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 really hustle and hound people in order to get paid anything else I think that's anything great. else there no well, well i guess i just want well so amy so you have been on staff a bitch but now you're becoming a fiction writer are you like worried about the transition into like freelance writerhood or or fiction writerhood is this something you've been thinking about um, no, because I'm a compartmentalizer, so I'm not thinking that far ahead yet. It would be too stressful. But I do think about, because uh, I actually, while I'm in school, I am freelancing a little bit just because just because I need to pay my bills too. Um, and it's really stressful. I mean, like, right now, I'm lucky to have a really steady gig. But like, I, I am kind of also a doom and gloom person. It's like, oh, my God, what if this gig runs out? Then what? You know, um, I think that uh, from seeing my friends, my friends who freelance as much as they can, they you know, some of them even also have full time jobs. Um, it's a huge hustle. It's a lot of work because you're constantly um, you're working against so many things. You're working against the fact that like we're on these types of like twenty um, four hour news cycles or like these twenty four hour turnovers where an event happens, you need to write really quickly and get it out there. I'm a really slow writer, so like that doesn't work for me. Um, you're also working against like this large pool of other freelancers who also have really great writing and really great pieces to back them up um, and really great perspectives. Um, so I think that like what what being on this side has shown me versus what being like an on-staff editor at Bitch has shown me is that, um, and I don't, this, is, this wasn't really talked about in the um, Columbia's um, journalism review piece, but it, you know, your relationship to an editor is also super important. And your relationship to an organization is really important. Like I said earlier, like you don't want to talk shit about Vice if you're a freelancer for them because you're probably never going to get employed by them again. Um, so like, you know, I think that a huge part of like being a successful freelancer 
uh, maybe I'm not sure yet because I'm not like that deep in the world is like the connections that you can make um, through your different networks because if you're on somebody's radar and I know this as from the editing side is like if I knew somebody's on my radar then I'm more like, likely to approach them or to ask them to pitch me um, so it's really about like preserving those connections and I think that's something like this that happened at Vice shows you that you know, if you're going up against a big place like this, you really want to preserve those connections, even when somebody thoroughly fucks you over for a lot of money. And that's the scary part about, I think, the freelance economy is that, like, you kind of sometimes don't feel safe enough to come out against somebody who um, didn't abide by their terms because you don't want to lose work. Um, and I think that's something that I, I'm seeing more of as a person who's on the other side of, like, the you know the editing wall yeah and that's that's part of the power dynamic thing that i that i think is really important to keep in mind as an editor is that it is um often scary for freelancers to speak up about something that they don't like about the way you've edited a piece or if they want to give critical feedback of any kind they have to think about you know is this going to hurt my future prospects writing for this organization you know if they don't want to deal with me because i'm too much trouble and so that's something i try to work to encourage and hope that I <laughs> achieve sometimes all the time is like encouraging freelancers to to be able to give critical feedback and to make space for that and say hey if you have like if you have thoughts on how this is edited I want to I want this to be a collaborative process not a one-way street where I say this is how it's done but it's it's hard I think to cultivate that kind of trust and that kind of safety with between an editor freelancer relationship and that's something that we really work on at bitch and i hope we get it right all right for the last part of the show we share one thing we read one thing we watched and one thing we heard this week i'm going to start because i'm really excited um i just read this book called hidden figures it's by author margot lee shetterly and it's about it's the true story of african-american women who worked at nasa in the 1940s 50s and 60s and you might have heard about it already because it just got picked up to become a major motion picture. It's uh, debuting in January and it has like the best cast ever. It's starring it's starring Janelle Monae, uh, Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer as uh, three real life women who worked at NASA. Um, and it's so this history is so interesting and it hasn't been told before that um, there before there were the computers we think of, you know, like mechanical computers, there were human computers whose job it was to crunch all the numbers and do the equations um, that led to the engineering that was central to the aeronautics industry and then to the space industry. And a lot of people who were computers were women. Those were like the only jobs that they could get and NASA. you could be a secretary or you could be a computer. Um, but women who loved math and who wanted to work in uh, in what we would now call STEM careers uh, became NASA's first computers. And a lot of those women were African-American. So this book is a really it's called Hidden Figures. And it's a really critical look at all that history, both celebrating the women whose stories haven't been told and celebrating them as STEM pioneers, but also being critical of like, NASA's structures and prioritizing the space race over, you know, poverty here in on Earth and the role and the rampant sexism, racism and discrimination that was prevalent, even in a place that hired black women. They still had a lot to fight for within that group. So Hidden Figures comes out this week. Check it out. 
Wow. So wait, it's so this is the book that the film is based on? Yeah, exactly. Oh, rad. Cool. Okay, so I got to watch this week. Um, so uh, I don't have access to my normal television programming, so I'm watching a ton of Netflix. And um, the new season of Chef's Table came out. And so I think I may have talked about um, the first season of Chef's Table when it You, like, love reality year. cooking shows. Reality cooking shows are like... <laughs> But you watch. But this is more. <laughs> this is more of like a uh, like a documentary, a profile of like a single chef. And so the first season was full of white dudes, and the like the the standout episode was about Nikki Nakayama, who's a queer uh, woman chef of color. She was great. It was like my favorite episode, and like one of the worst episodes of that season I felt was about um, this white French chef um, named Francis Mallman. Uh, he was like just so indulgent and like hedonistic. It like really skeeved me out but so you know I, I was just I think that when I talked about the Nikki Nakayama ep, uh, episode last time I was just like well it'd be really great if Chef's Table profiled like more people who weren't like white dudes and so they came back this season and they were like Amy Lamb of Bitch Media we heard you and so <laughs> they made a whole season just for me uh, it's full of six episodes and there's only uh, one episode about a white American chef um, and his story is interesting but it, I felt like the the stories about the um the three the three male chefs of color and then there was also two women chefs uh, a French woman chef and a Salvadian chef uh, they were like ex like exceptionally interesting uh, I really loved the episode about Enrique Alvera who's a Mexican chef and um, uh, Gagan Adnan who's an Indian chef in uh, Thailand I think or Singapore I forget where he's living where his restaurant is now but these stories were like like infinitely way more interesting I remember than like the, the stories about the like the white chefs in the first season I think it has a lot to do with like because often in the chef's table um profiles they kind of tell a story about like these obstacles that the chefs had to overcome in order to like achieve like their ultimate vision and their ultimate vision because the chef's table is really obsessed with like like you know Michelin stars or like James Beard prizes like these these really stuffy um food awards so these all the chefs that are profiled in the series have won these awards um, but you know, in the narratives about like the chefs of color, the women chefs, like this, the things that they had to overcome to get to that, that level of like getting awarded these like really subjective, uh, awards is like so interesting because like their stories of the things that they overcome are, uh, have so many different nuances that have to do with like, like their culture or their gender or like where they're coming from, which is like mm -hmm. s very different than, um, the, the stories from a lot of the white chefs that I remember watching in the first season. So I definitely think that the second season of Chef's Table is one to, um, check out. And it just seems like in such deep contrast to the first season, it was just so much more interesting. Um, and just, uh, so much more different food to even look at and to like, not taste <laughs> not be able to taste but like super fun to watch okay chef's table i never watch reality cooking shows but maybe i'll check that one out yeah this is like a it's like documentary style okay. it's not like a it's not a competition <laughs> uh, it isn't like the great british breakoff it's documentary style and it's about a story and a challenge and a conflict that they had to overcome in order to achieve like the the vision of like what the foods they really love to cook moments of triumph which... i love a documentary like moments of triumph <laughs> Um, all yes. right, our music pick for this week is a new album from a band, Ila Bamba. Uh, this basically is a band, it's a front woman named Lucelena Mendoza who collaborates with a bunch of musicians, vocalists, and composers on 
on her albums, but she's kind of the front woman and she she guides the show. Um, this new album is called Ojos del Sol, and it really revolves around her exploration of her Mexican-American identity, both in the album's lyrics and in its sound. Um, she grew up, she's the daughter of Mexican immigrants and she, uh, who grew up in the United States, she grew up listening to like the family's melodies and stories and traditional folk songs. And you can really hear that influence in, especially in this album. So the band is Ila Bamba and the album is Ojos del Sol. This is the title track off the album. Let's listen to it. Check it out. It came out this week. Thanks, Amy. Good luck on all your fiction writing. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to back talk next tap back talk time. <laughs> <laughs> your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better, Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener-supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Le pido a Dios que me dé felicidad.